Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton has tested over 11,000 people for COVID-19. It's the highest amount in the province. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson will join us to talk about that. And the mayor wants to put together a task force for economic recovery post-pandemic. The debate at City Council yesterday was, well, kind of ugly, kind of dysfunctional, but polite. We'll talk about how that's going to happen and what's going to happen as a result of that vote. And could COVID-19 be here to stay? World Health Organization said that is a real possibility. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. According to a new report, Hamilton has seen 11,182 people tested for COVID-19 so far. Uh, That's one of the highest amounts of people in the province. Just how important is this and what do they do with the data? Well, joining us to talk about this and uh, other related issues, of course, is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning, Bill. Glad to be with you. Let's uh, maybe, Doctor, if we could start with a very elementary question. I mean, you know, data is, is you know, truth is power and, and knowledge is power, and we all know this, and we need to know numbers, and now we're starting to get some data about exactly what we're dealing with here. Why is, uh, when we're looking at this particular report here, uh, why is testing that important? What do you do with that information? Well, testing is important for a few reasons. Um, one is that it gives us an idea, you know, we use it in surveillance, as we call it. So what we're trying to do is understand the virus, understand how far it's spreading, understand how it's affecting people differently, depending on uh, different factors. And so having that information about who's truly infected and who um, isn't is really important to us. And especially, you know, when this all started out, we were still in cold season and flu season. And so we needed to understand what was this virus and what were other viruses like, you know, other coronaviruses, flu virus, and those sorts of things. So understanding exactly which virus is going around is really important to us. The other thing that we use testing for, and we're going to increasingly use uh, testing for, is to do the case and contact management. So it's to understand who has an infection and then be able to work with them to isolate the, um, for that 14-day period to find out who it is that they have been in contact with, who it is that they might have gotten the virus from, and who it is that they may have spread the virus to, um, so that we can try to reduce the number of people who get the virus, so to try and control the spread of the virus. It's also important, of course, when we're dealing with any kind of congregate setting, like long-term care homes, retirement homes, and that sort of thing. We're, we're trying to understand the Again, the number of people who are ill there and how we can uh, can can bring them together. We call that cohorting, and so we bring together people who are not well, um, and uh, and at the same time cohort those that are well, so that we can reduce transmission again. So it's really a key factor in managing this disease. Is there any way to, uh, I, I guess, even estimate at this stage how many people may have had the virus that that you don't know about? Uh, who know who, as you say, it depends oftentimes on, on symptoms and how dramatic the symptoms are, are with that individual. But I also have been told, doctor, that there's some people that actually did call, uh, in, not just in this area, but I mean the public health office in whatever jurisdiction they were in. And basically they were said, yeah, you probably got it. Just stay home for 14 days. They actually didn't, are, are they part of that statistic or if, if they actually called? No, they wouldn't be part of the statistics if they called. And that was during the, the phase where we were still needing to ramp up. We had short supplies. Yeah, the early testing. days, yeah. Yeah, the testing supplies. And so we were really focusing in on those that were were more seriously ill. And as, as we gained experience with this virus, we came to know that it causes a fair range of symptoms. 
And so now we're looking at, at testing pretty much anybody who has these symptoms that would be related to COVID-19. So it, it does, you're right, it varies over time. That makes it a little bit more difficult to know how many people are, are infected. Um, and so that's where those, what we call seroprevalence surveys come in um, in helping us understand who has been infected over the, the time since this virus still came to be. And the early seroprevalence, <laughs> hard word to say, seroprevalence surveys that have been um, done around the world are showing that probably about 10% of the population um, in various countries has been infected and about 90% still remains susceptible. So it'll be very interesting to see once those seroprevalence studies get underway here in Canada. And therein lies the problem. I mean, I, I don't know how many people I've talked to, it's, well, since I've been, you know, isolated here at home, that have said, yeah, you know what, I probably had it. I, I, and they go back and tell me some story, but, uh, you know, I was achy. I think what well, in the initial stages, oh, Tom Hanks and, and Rita Wilson, you know, had it. And, and this is what they had. It was respiratory problems and headaches. And uh, I didn't have that, but I'd had diarrhea and I had this. And they said, well, that was probably COVID too. We, we're still trying to define what this is, aren't we? That's right. That's right. And when a virus causes such a range of symptoms, it becomes harder to be clear, you know, as to which virus it might be. You know, achy and and uh, a fever, that sounds more like influenza, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Um, it, but again, when we've got different viruses going at the same time, that's where, why the testing is so important, so we can tell between the different viruses that are out there. But even as you do the testing, from what I'm assuming, again, of what we're hearing from, from the, the medical officers that are on TV every day talking about this, doctor, that's, it's like a snapshot in time because you could test negative today and positive on Saturday. That's right. And that's one of the things that people forget. It's not, it's not as if, you know, if you test negative today that you're going to be negative for the rest of the summer, for example. You're, as we go about our business, we get exposed potentially to the virus. And so, uh, as well, it takes time for once the virus has initially entered your body for it to show up in a test. And we know that, you know, generally people become symptomatic between two and 14 days after they have been exposed to the virus. And so it does not, all it tells you is at that moment in time, that person isn't infected with the virus. The other kind of complicating thing about the test that we're using right now, um, it's a very sensitive test, which means it picks up um, you know, almost all of the, the people who have it, it will say, yep, they've got it. But at the same time, it can stay positive for some time after people are well as well. So it's a little bit challenging on the other end to tell us when people have actually resolved. Really, their symptoms are a better indicator of that. One of the other concerns that we've heard lately, too, are about false positives. Uh, and and uh, explain maybe exactly what that is. I mean, you figure when you're getting the test on, it's either going to be positive or negative. Uh, but there's uh, some some question about how reliable the data might be. So false positives happen when a test comes up and says you have a disease and it turns out you actually don't. And it can happen, you know, anytime. No test is 100% perfect. Many of them are very, very close, and that includes the one for COVID-19. Um, the challenge is that there can be a few reasons for a false positive. So it could just be that you know, it's detecting something else and it comes up as, as being positive, or it could be that something is contaminated in the, the process of testing, uh, of doing the test. Um, and that, it seems to be what happened with the 10 false positives that we had from a Castle Lodge. So we had a very astute, our, our labs run, you know, good quality control programs to make sure that uh, anything like that false positive is picked up very quickly. And so what happened was 
they were they were running the uh, tests on asymptomatic people from the long-term care homes, which we've done almost 8,000 tests over the last 10, 10, or, so, 10 or so days. And um, they got a string of positives, which is quite unusual. And so they um, they pulled them off and took a look at them and, and went back over things and then called us and said, hmm, I know we told you those were positive, but we're a little concerned. And so they overnight that night and into the next day, they ran a couple more tests on them to double check. And lo and behold, with, with double checking them with other tests, they were negative. And so, you know, as they looked at it further, it looked like a batch of the reagent that's used in the testing had gotten contaminated. And that was the reason for it. And they went on to, to test thousands of other tests as well and found eight more of ours that were uh, potentially false positives. So it can be very disconcerting to hear that that happens. Absolutely. And we understand that and, and our lab partners understand that. And that's why they work so hard to, uh, to do the quality control on it. The good news is that they end up being negative. Um, and so we had a, you know, three outbreaks that we were, had declared or um, were in the process of declaring. And uh, ultimately, it turned out that those were uh, not outbreaks at all. And in fact, there were none. So when you think about this, the many, many, many thousands of tests that we've done, and particularly just over that 10-day period, it's a very, very low rate at which that happens. And so still have tremendous faith in the test, tremendous faith in our lab, and uh, the quality control work that they do will help us to identify where there are errors. In early days, and I guess we're going back to February, March, I guess, when this whole thing started, and uh, we were just learning about COVID-19 and, uh, and what it might do. Uh, there were predictions and, and estimates given at that time, Doctor, that uh, that probably 75 to 90 percent of the population were probably going to uh, have some exposure to this. And uh, I, I know those numbers that you've just talked about here don't indicate that, but when you include the, the number of people that may have been symptomatic and not known that it was COVID-19, uh, is it possible that that is actually happening? Because it really depends on just what kind of an impact it has on your body, I suppose, before you start, you know, hearing alarm bells go off. Well, that'll be the the question: is you know, what proportion of people are actually symptomatic and asymptomatic? And so we know with some viruses like West Nile virus, most people don't even realize they've been infected, and and you know, their body processes it, addresses it with their immune system, and and they're done with it. And it's just a small portion of people who actually feel like they have a sort of cold-like illness or uh, or have a more a very small portion have a more serious illness, of course. Um, we don't know yet with coronavirus what those proportions are, and we're just trying to understand them. It's clear that there's a group that are as- entirely asymptomatic. It's clear that there's a group that um, start to, to um, be infectious to others before they get symptoms, and then a, a group of them do. And that's where those seroprevalence studies come in and are so important to look at, you know, what proportion of people are asymptomatic. With only 10% uh, so far, it, it looks like the number's probably lower than the sort of experience we have with West Nile virus, but it's going to take some time to understand it altogether. Well, it's going to take us some time to understand the virus too, isn't it? I mean, we're, again, almost every day now we hear of uh, different variations on, on what this can do to the body. I mean, you know, you've talked about the respiratory situations, uh, the headache thing that can happen, the achiness. Uh, now we're hearing that maybe, you know, there could be intestinal things, diarrhea can be part of this. Uh, more troubling, I guess, is, you know, some of the other things that we're hearing, uh, especially down in the States, but uh, they say, well, the strokes can be a, apparently a byproduct of this in some people. Uh, this new thing that we've just heard about this Kawasaki syndrome that some children may be suffering from seems to be related to COVID-19. We're still trying to really, I guess, define exactly what this does and, and, and how it impacts the body. Absolutely. I mean, we know that 
that for most people it's going to be a, more like a bad cold. Um, but unfortunately for some, it is going to be a more serious illness now. Unfortunately, that's rare. It seems, you know, these these rare strokes that, that they've seen in the U.S., the Kawasaki syndrome that they're talking about now, um, you know, these these do seem to be quite rare, but of course we're concerned about them, want to understand them as we go forward. And fortunately, there are research teams at McMaster, there's research teams around the globe who are working on this, combing through the data. And you talked about data off the top, you know, the tremendous amount of information that is being gathered and shared around the world. It's just so critical. But I think it really is important to, to come back to that piece about how do we control its spread. And so we know for some people just coming forward for testing and that the inconvenience of, of what comes afterwards in terms of isolation and whatnot, you know, could could perhaps even um, cause somebody to think they wouldn't want to do that. But coming forward is so important to help us um, in terms of controlling the spread of this and understanding uh, the scope and, and the ways that it affects people. And so, you know, we have to be really mindful of that. The people who come forward for testing are really doing us all a favor, both in terms of, um, uh, you know, then going through the control measures and whatnot, but also in terms of the information that they're providing. And so we need to support them as best we can. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci has become a, a folk hero, an icon, I guess, uh, in, in a result of this. And I, I admire him for his, his, his expertise in this. And he's, and as Dr. Williams has been here in Ontario, as you have been here locally, et cetera. Uh, but there seems to be a common concern that they have all expressed. And I wanted to get your read on this too, doctor. As we begin, uh, to, to lift some of these restrictions, and apparently we're going to hear more from the Premier and the Prime Minister later on today about that. And of course, the City Council talked about it yesterday at their meeting. Are you concerned about the fact that more people are going to be exposed and what that might cause? Well, absolutely. We remain concerned. And, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. We've spent, you know, the last few months all talking together about exactly what we need to do to control this virus. And that, you know, those core measures remain absolutely key. You know, the physical distancing, the staying home if you're sick, and that means staying home from the garden center. That means staying home from the grocery store. That means staying home from work. Um, you know, those are absolutely key. Covering your sneeze, all of those pieces, the hand washing, um, and soap and water is the mainstay of that. So absolutely um, need to continue to follow those. We're going to follow the numbers very closely, and that's why the testing is so important so that we can understand what is happening as we go through this. We understand that, you know, economically, we need to look at how we can move forward, you know, when it comes to people's physical and mental health and need to get out and about and and see one another. We need to be mindful of those things. And it is a balance. It is a balance of all those risks. But we do need to remember this virus is out there. We're going to need to live with it for some time, as you were saying. And we need to live differently than we did. It is a new um, way of living in a COVID world that we're going to have to, to put together together. Doctor, uh, reassuring to get your uh, input into all of these things, uh, still a lot of questions, as I say, and that's why it's uh, so important, I think, that we have this opportunity to discuss these uh, stories as they come up. Thank you so much for this, and uh, again, thanks to you and everybody on your staff for the great work that you're doing here in the community. Thanks, Bill, and thanks to the media for getting the word out. Okay, take care. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. City Council met yesterday. Uh, you know, we had the mayor on, of course, with his town hall uh, on Monday of this week. And uh, Mayor Eisenberger talked about his uh, task force on economic recovery. Well, that was a motion that actually had to go before council. 
Uh, and, uh, well, not without a little bit of controversy, I guess, as they finally decided to, A, do this, and B, set the, uh, the terms as to how this was actually going to roll out. John Vest, uh, who, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about what went uh, on yesterday, how it happened, and, and what the ramifications are. John, first of all, thanks so much. I hope you're well today. Yes, uh, very well, Bill, just uh, like everybody else, waiting for uh, things to open up a little bit more. Well, we'll see what the uh, the leaders have to say about that today. Yeah. Uh, city Council yesterday, this seemed like a great idea, uh, the idea of having the, the Task Force on Economic Recovery. We we talked to the mayor about this we, a couple of weeks ago. We had Norm Schlehan on from uh, Economic Development here in the city, uh, and they, of course, did an online survey with a number of businesses. So they, they had the information here about what they wanted to do. But yeah, sometimes, John, I get the idea that, you know, if there was a vote on city council about what day of the week it was, it would be a split vote. Uh, and and uh, these guys just don't seem to be able to come together or be on the same page. This thing finally passed, but not without a lot of sidebar conversations, I guess. Well, it was, I mean, the what prompted me to write my article um, uh, on the bayobserver.ca was, was everything but the task force because there was no controversy in terms of the the report that uh, Norm had presented, he, he uh, presented a, a survey that, that showed how deeply uh, the COVID uh, crisis has affected local business. And then they, uh, they went from there uh, to actually look at the terms of reference of the task force. And uh, um, so, you know, there, there was never an issue about approving uh, any of that. It was all about the the sidebar stuff, and it it sort of started uh, with uh, Councillor Wilson actually uh, when he was presenting the um, the survey. Uh, she started asking questions about whether people who don't speak English were properly represented in the survey and some of that stuff. And you could just see things starting to tighten up around the well. It's not a table anymore, but on the screens. Uh, you know, a bit of eye rolling because it, it seemed like we were uh, heading into a sort of an ideological lens here. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the survey was one of these, uh, uh, you know, these kind of surveys that are done online where essentially it's not a scientific survey. It's based on who participates, uh, you know. Um, so, you know, there was never any sense of it trying to meet any kind of gender, uh, ethnic, or any other kind of quota. It was just whoever chose to participate. And they did get a 1,000, so it was good. But anyway, that, that kind of set the tone. And, um, and then, uh, so they went along, everything fine. And then they get around to the issue of, okay, who's going to be on the task force representing council? So 24 percent. That, that, that'll set it downhill pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. This is, so this is what, a- every, everybody wants to play quarterback. Yeah, so it, it's a 24-member task force, and council's representation, uh, the, the recommendation at least, was that there be the mayor and two members of council. So then they started talking about who wants to be on it, and, and it became clear very quickly that um, the, uh, you know, the consensus was coalescing around Councillor Ferguson and Councillor Partridge to be on the task force, and of course... I think it's fair to say that both of them would represent a more uh, pro-business kind of approach, which perhaps with a with a task force that's trying to get business going again, that's not a bad thing. But uh, at that point, uh, Councillor Nan, who's uh, you know seen as on the sort of progressive, if you will, wing, uh, she wanted to be on 
on the committee. And then, and then things kind of hardened up because you had, uh, I remember Collins and some of them saying, no, it was two people. It's going to be two people. And, um, Brad Clark tried to be a peacemaker. He said, well, come on, we can expand it to three. It's no big deal. Uh, so it, it, it just, you know, it really, you could just feel the whole room freezing up or the whole, uh, group freezing up at that point, And you could feel the lines being drawn between, uh, you know, the, the, the majority of council, quite frankly, and, and this uh, progressive group, which essentially consists of Will, uh, Councillor Wilson, Nan, and Danko. They seem to have formed a little group of uh, uh, progressive, I guess uh, it would be the best word. Anyway, at, at the end of it all, uh, Clark made another speech where he said, come on, folks, if, the, if we're going to start dividing along these lines, Every time we're voting on something, uh, we're, we're headed into trouble, and so it ended up that, that Councillor Nan was added to the uh, to the, uh, the task force. But it, to me, it was just kind of a tableau for what's going on there. There's really um, a hardening and a polarization that's taking place. Uh, and this is this is not new. This is not the first time you've seen evidence of that, and, and this is probably not the only council, John, that, that has that that kind of division within it. And and sometimes it, it rears its ugly head. It rears its ugly head. Sometimes it doesn't. I guess it really depends on the issue. Uh, but uh, the fact is, is there seems to be, and, and as anticipated, different philosophies. But at the same time, it's almost like there are voting blocks within this council. No question about it. I mean, it's not almost like there are. And and I think I think where we and, and I don't. You know, I don't have a problem with people disagreeing and uh, with each other, um, but I, I think where it really uh, is a failing is when we start opposing things just because of who proposed them. You know, if we start throwing out good ideas uh, or not bad ideas simply because of who it is that made the proposal, then then I think that's where that's the point at which it starts becoming uh, non-productive. Do you see that happening on a regular basis? Saw it yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and then just to further illustrate it, later in the meeting, moving on from the task force, they're now dealing with other subjects, and um, uh, talking about you know uh, post-COVID recovery and so on. So once again, Councillor Wilson uh, wanted staff to do a report on uh, the financial implications of COVID on the city's golf courses, and and you know that seemed. Um, I don't know. It, it didn't strike me as a as a wildly unusual request, but immediately uh, that was jumped all over, and and I couldn't help but feel that it had more to do with the earlier discussion than it did on the merits of the case. And um, and to, at one point, um, Councillor Ferguson suggested, without providing any evidence, that. That the reason that Councillor Wilson was trying to get this information about golf courses because she had some ulterior plan for golf courses, which sounds like closing them down or doing something other than golf with them. Uh, he didn't elaborate on where he got that idea, but he, he mentioned it two or three times um, in his remarks. So again, I sort of got the impression that that it wasn't so much the merits of of what was being suggested as it was who's making the suggestion. And and just to underline that, I've been told by more than one counselor that that Danko, Wilson, and Nan have basically been isolated. Council has just drawn a red circle around them, 
you and I talked about that a week ago. Mm-hmm. And and you're just going to see more of this. Did Councillor Wilson explain why she wanted the report? Um, well, I think she did or attempted to, but uh, it was not clear really what either she or um, why she was separating the golf courses from all the other city recreational facilities. And, and actually the way it ended up was that staff said that they will be doing a report uh, on all of the impact on all of the recreational facilities, and it'll certainly include the golf courses. But underlying all this is, um, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but, you know, I, I sort of get the sense that, that the reason that uh, this uh, progressive group irritate council so much is because it reminds them uh, of their idealism when they first got elected. And, you know, if you go back, I mean, there was uh, the early, you know, going back, you know, to just after amalgamation, there was no greater social warrior on council than than a councillor Marula, for instance. I mean, he was, you know, very much on the progressive side of things. And over the years, uh, you know, reality sets in. And I, I think part of it is that. I, I think most people that get elected... Uh, you know, you got elected, I think, on a with you know on a on a sense that we needed to change the culture at City Hall by. Hey, we, by there were, I was one of a number of new faces in that election in '97. Yeah, the you Ron Corsini, Andrea Horvath, and uh, and now, of course on the regional council there were some new faces as well. Yeah, so I, I think most people get elected. I mean, I mean, <laughs> nobody would ever accuse Bernie Morelli of being a social uh, warrior, but I can remember him telling me. You know, that, that when he first got elected, he was focused on the big picture. He was focused on the citywide, city building, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, after two or three terms, um, suddenly it's got a lot more to do about delivering blue boxes. And it's got a lot more to do about sorting out neighborhood squabbles and zoning issues. And the just the sheer day-to-day drip, drip, drip of... Um, the reality of the job sets in, and so I, I think part of it, so we now we have three people that are all uh, clearly uh, expressing idealistic views on council, and I think it's kind of an irritating reminder in some ways to uh, people that have been there uh, for a few terms. Well, I'm wondering if Council Wilson's suggestion or, or request, rather, John, was was a, a precursor to what may be happening down the road, because you and I both know that there has been an undercurrent for a long time now from some members on Council to say, look, if we're going to have to look at costs, and, and we know we're going to have a huge, huge problem with budgets going into 2021 because of what's happening here with COVID, uh, do we really need three golf courses owned by the city? Do we really need two lawn care facilities owned by the city? Because you're not mandated to do that, but we're doing it. And and I tell you, we've had those debates in the past, and they've been ugly uh, and, and very, very divisive. And I'm wondering if we're heading down that road again. Well, it's possible, although, um, you know, I can't imagine, uh, you know, if we're talking about Shadok Golf Course, for instance, which is in Councillor Wilson's ward, if the plan is to sell it, I, I can't see any any sale of that that would be anything other than property for development. And uh, I, I can't see her as being in favor of, um, you know, removing green space and replacing it with, with development unless she's thinking that uh, social housing or something could go in there. But, but again, this is pure speculation because there was no explicit comment no question, though, as you point out, the council is going to have to face some tough times. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, 
was talking to somebody yesterday with, uh, a, you know, a, been watching a very close observer of the federal scene who, who says, that, you know, watch for the next move by Trudeau uh, will be undoubtedly to, to um, send some money to the municipalities to help them cover off these, uh, these terrible deficits that they're going mm-hmm. to face. Um, I wonder as well if, um, if they're, you know, under the Municipal Act right now, cities are not allowed to borrow money to cover operating deficits. I wonder, though, if uh, that might be relaxed uh, on a temporary basis so that some of the city's problems it can absorb itself through borrowing. Um, that won't be popular, but uh, there's only, you know, the, the province doesn't have the kind of money to throw around that the that the feds have. So be interesting to see what those uh, measures look like. I know, and it's going to be tempting if, in fact, they do go down to starting to sell public assets uh, like golf courses, uh, the two at, at Shit Oak, of course, and then Kings Forest over on the other side of town. Uh, but if I recall some of the uh, elements of that debate, uh, it's no easy task. I mean, some people may salivate and say, you know, think of the money they could get if they sold that land. Uh, but you've not just got city council involved in that. I believe uh, because of the location of all three of those golf courses, John, the Niagara Scarping Commission weighs in on that too. Uh, so anybody that uh, has any idea of wanting to develop that land, and I don't think it's going to happen, uh, has got a, hu- a huge, huge list of, of, of obstacles to try to overcome to get anything done. I agree. I, I think both of them are uh, tucked in under the um, escarpment, and it's going to be very difficult to uh, commercialize them in any way. I suppose you could turn them into public parks, uh, you know, and open, you know, and have them as open green space. But I think that's that's about it. Um, uh, I don't see, uh, you know, the the public parks act or the Niagara escarpments uh, mandate being altered. Uh, uh, as a result of the COVID, I think you'd have to make a pretty strong case. So that's the only way you could you could raise money. But again, pure speculation. The only person that talked about it that was Councillor Ferguson, and I'm not sure where he got his information. Well, it's uh, probably going to come to a head at some point in the future uh, when these reports come back and they start looking at this. And, and again, I can only speculate as to where they're thinking on this. But it, it just seems as if, because I've seen this with some of the votes when I watch the council meetings as well, John, that uh, those three that, you, that you've identified here seem to stand alone on, on, on many of these issues where there is a, a social element to this. And, and I know that uh, I think Councillor Nan talked about that yesterday. Uh, and as did Councillor Wilson, you know, what about uh, the representation from labor and minority groups, etc.? And I know there was some pushback, at least I sensed there was some pushback from some of the other councillors saying, look, this is about economic recovery. Uh, can we just focus on that? Yeah, I, uh, certainly the mayor said that. He said, you know, let's not get bogged down with, um, you know, the, these side issues. Uh, you know, that the purpose of this group is to try to get those sectors of the economy that have been most affected. And, and a lot of that is small business, a very small business, micro business. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the restaurants. It's the, uh, the little gift shops uh, up and down our, our shopping districts. It's, uh, they're the ones that have really felt the pinch. And I think that's where, you know, a fair amount of the focus of the task force is going to be. Well, it so, has to be. I mean, you look, look at this report. And and we had largely in on this. I mean, they, as as they out, outlined yesterday, about thirteen thousand jobs have been lost in small business, but a thirty five percent decrease. Ninety uh, percent of respondents reported a decrease in revenue because, and, and that's, I guess, what the frustration would be here, John. Is they got to keep their eye on the ball here. This is about economic recovery. It There's is. a lot of other problems extraneous to that, but and they'll deal with those. But this is this is a specific job for a specific task force. 
Yeah, and I think I think council bristled. Uh, that you know you can't you can't apply a social lens, a social justice lens to every single thing that crosses your desk. Uh, I mean, you can try to do that, but then you'll uh, you know you'll end up being marginalized, and and that's kind of what's happening with uh, with these three. Um, they've they've really irritated council. Uh, and council's back is up. They don't like to be, you mentioned this uh, last time we chatted, that, you know, the one thing council does not like is having a finger wagged at them. They don't like to be preached down to. And uh, so they're reacting in kind of a visceral manner, from what I can see. And, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, uh, you know, you can you can join a group for all the right reasons, but... Uh, a lot of the function of council, as you would be the first to admit, I think, is drudgery. It's it's just doing stuff uh, yep. in, in the ward, and you know you try to you know a good counselor tries to have an eye on the big picture as well. But a lot of it is uh, you know you're you're essentially a servant to um, people that are coming at you from all different directions, uh, wanting you to do things for them. And, and then the added frustration is that probably 80% of what the public is asking you to do is either not your jurisdiction or out of your capability to change. And that's well, and that's the case. That's the case. I mean, you know, you can go in there with the greatest of ideas. And I, I, you're right. I think most counselors that get elected do that. And, you know, we want to forge a plan here for economic recovery so that everybody can get a job and know these small businesses. And then they're going to get a phone call. So, yeah, well, I need to get my blue box picked up today. What are you going to do about that, counselor? And that, boom, yeah. all of a sudden your focus shifts. Yeah. Uh, we're out of time, John. Thanks so much for this. Always great to uh, read your reporting on all these issues. And uh, always great to have you on the program. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you're making your decisions about how you're going to maintain physical distancing uh, and isolation, I guess, in some cases, uh, comes a report from the World Health Organization that suggests that COVID-19 could be here to stay. I know that there's been a lot of talk about, well, yeah, when that vaccine gets developed, and uh, that's, that's going to be it. We'll nail that thing at that time. Not necessarily so. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Anna Banjuri, who is uh, with the University of Toronto. She's the faculty lead in Indigenous and Refugee Health uh, Post-MD Education and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. I know that when you read the headline here, Doctor, and say, well, look, at this, this COVID-19 could stay with us. It may not get eradicated. Uh, and that's it, kind of a frightening thought, but there are many other things that we're dealing with. That, that AIDS comes to mind as one. We don't have a cure for AIDS, do we? No, no. Uh, we have control, and so many people that have HIV can have uh, long, productive lives with the medications that they're on. Yeah. I, and I know that there was a lot of talk, well, we've got to find a cure for this. There need to be a vaccine, and they tried. Sadly, there were some fatalities as a result of that because they probably rushed it back in those days. But we've, for lack of a better expression, I guess, kind of learned to live with the fact that it's there, so we need to take precautions about that. Is there a possibility, Doctor, that, that COVID-19 may, may follow that same path? I think that COVID-19 will be with us, um, you know, in the future. I think it's one of, it most likely will become one of the, the, the viral infections that we get on a seasonal basis. But the whole epidemiology, I think, is going to change uh, in the next little while. 
So how how do we address something like that? And at what point do you make that determination to say because uh, there, you know, there are labs all over the place, uh, some here in Hamilton, Toronto, uh, KW, and of course everywhere else in the world right now, saying we got to come up with a vaccine for this. Uh, but we're assuming, as as the public here, doctor, that that it's inevitable that they will find a, a cure, they will find a vaccine for that. But that doesn't always happen, does it? Um, I think they, they will find a vaccine. Um, there are many, uh, at least a hundred groups around the world working on a vaccine. So I'm sure that they will. Uh, the question becomes, you know, how effective will the vaccine be? How much coverage will we have? How many people do we need to have? Uh, you know, immunized to get what we call herd immunity to to prevent the the, the spread of this uh, virus. Um, this is a highly infectious virus, and you know some viruses we've been able to control with vaccination. For example, smallpox. But mm-hmm. the the thing with smallpox was anyone who was sick showed symptoms. You couldn't have smallpox without showing symptoms. So it was easy to isolate them um, and. Um, you know, and then do the infection control, and then with the vaccine, it was just easy to get that under control. But the problem with uh, the the COVID-19 virus is that many people have it. I think a lot more people have had it already, and they don't realize it, because many people have it, and they have no symptoms or minimal symptoms. And so until, you know, until we get a vaccine, the infection is going to spread. You know, it's going to be reduced with the physical distancing, but the the virus will spread. Now, once we get a vaccine, if that vaccine works, you know, 100% and you give it to 100% of the world's population, then we could potentially eradicate it. But likely it's not going to work 100%. And there will be pockets of people that um, don't get it. Um, and so so it will be around. But I think that what's going to happen is that over a period of time, um, people will be exposed, get the virus. Most people will have minimal symptoms or cold-like symptoms, but then hopefully they'll have immunity. And, and, and then as, as um, for a, vi- a, vi- a virus to propagate, what you need is people who are non-immune. So people will become immune through natural infection, so they'll get the, the virus and become immune, or eventually they will become immune through a vaccine. And so, um, and as children are being born and this virus is out there, Children will probably get the 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 virus um, or the vaccine if it it exists, but they'll have mild symptoms. So basically, it will be something that's generally under control. Let's let's talk about immunity because uh, there's at least some of the literature I've been reading, Doctor, suggests that we're not quite sure whether or not we would be immune. In other words. Uh, well, one of the celebrated cases, of course, uh, you know, with the, the CNN anchor, of course, uh, Chris Cuomo, who ha- had it and talked about it as he was going through it uh, during his time with COVID. Uh, and uh, there was some discussion, well, am I going to get it again? I, I don't think we have an answer for that, do we? If, no, if whether or not you're going to be totally immune or not? Yeah, no, so we don't know, um, you know, 100%. We'll only know when the vaccine, is, when the virus is out for a while. But for most uh, viruses and most coronavirus infections, there is at least uh, some short-term, um, you know, immunity and and possibly long-term immunity. If this is a virus that's out there, then it might, you know, if we keep getting exposed to it once we've had it, it might boost the immune system and we might not get, um, um, you know, many symptoms from it. But chances are there will be at least some partial immunity. 
when I, when I hear discussions about immunity and, and, and inoculations about this, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember polio. And that, yes. you know, they were just starting to eradicate that as, as I was a kid. And I remember, like, you know, the, the old pictures. I'm sure some people have seen these lining up in grade school to get your shot at once a year. Uh, you know, for for the polio vaccine, and uh, it, it essentially eradicated the the, the disease. Uh, but I, I remember reading now there are some parts in the world where it's starting to, to show up again. Is that because they have not been inoculated, or is that just a, is that a a virus that has has mutated and is is back again? So there's a couple of reasons why um, um, there are some parts of the world where it's still. Uh, present. Polio is one of those infections where you can have minimal symptoms and then, then therefore have polio, uh, ex- shed it in your stools, uh, and then, then other people can get it. It's really spread through, um, it's, it's called the fecal oral route. Um, so, uh, like food poisoning. It's, it's, what, it's one of those, um, it's, it's shed through the stools. And so, it's hard to eliminate something when you have people that have it asymptomatically, but then we have a very good vaccine. But in parts of the world uh, where there is under uh, vaccination or even, you know, areas where there is conflict, you know, for example, in Nigeria, there have been issues where you, you, it's hard to get people to do the, uh, the polio vaccination. That's why polio still persists. Um, but I think theoretically, if we can get everyone in the world vaccinated and, um, you know, it is possible to eradicate polio, but it's how, ch- more challenging than, for example, smallpox. How long does a vaccination last? Because, I, again, I'll go back to my childhood. We got the polio shot, and we used to get, I have to go to the doctor for what they call a booster. Is that just that's, like a, a top-up? Yeah, that's right. So um, most vaccines, over a period of time, especially if you're not being exposed to the virus, immunity can wane. Some things you, you have immunity, but hopefully for the rest of your life, uh, you know, but some some viruses, uh, you know, you you need boosters because the immunity can win. Like for example, mumps. Uh, we've had mumps and measles. I mean, we have a, a fairly good vaccine, but mo- uh, measles is very contagious. And so, um, you know, you vaccinate kids when they're younger, but then sometimes the immunity wanes, and so we have now outbreaks of measles and mumps occurring around the world. And so the booster sort of uh, is a primer for the immune system so that when they're exposed again to the virus, you're already ready um, to to handle the virus. Um, so, you know, we don't know what this vaccination is going to be like for COVID. We don't know how effective it's going to be, how long it's going to last. There are other viruses where, for example, influenza, the virus changes uh, from year to year and there are different circulating strains. So we need to get annual influenza shots, and, and it's not always 100%. Um, for example, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which affects young kids, you know, they they don't have a vaccine for that. So we don't know really, you know, so many people are working on a coronavirus vaccine. You know, hopefully it will work, and hopefully it will be long-lasting, but until it's out there, we, we've, um, and people have done studies to show what the immunity is going to be like. We don't really know. 
because I think a lot of us, uh, un, you know, the uninformed about these sorts of things, just think, well, the vaccine is going to be the shield. I'm never going to have to worry about this stuff again. Uh, you know, shingles is another one that comes to mind, you know, with the, the vaccination. But I think that wears off after a while, too, doesn't it? That's right. And you, and you, you would need to get, um, like for the chickenpox vaccine, originally they were giving one dose and now they're giving two doses because they realize that the, that the immunity uh, may wear off. And chickenpox is something that's actually worse uh, the older you get. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, uh, kids are getting two doses now and adults are getting boosters to prevent shingles but that's when you've actually had chickenpox and the and the virus um emerges again in the form of shingles so by giving um, a shingles vaccine uh, it boosts the immunity to try to keep the chickenpox under control but to be clear though doctor those viruses are still out there uh, we're just we're immune to them because of the vaccines or, and and the herd immunity that can develop in some situations. That's but right. uh, you know, failing that, or if we get you know lax in in our, our diligence about this, uh, those those viruses can still impact us. That's right. That's right. I mean, think if if all of a sudden a group of people decided not to get vaccinated, or um, you know, or the or we don't get the boosters. Some of those uh, viruses will reemerge, as we've seen the outbreaks of mumps and measles around the world. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen with the coronavirus vaccine. But what's going to happen, I think, naturally, is that this is uh, since coronavirus is such a highly infectious uh, virus, and and it seems to be spreading, um, you know. It is continuing to spread, but most people are getting minimal symptoms. So after a period of time, there there will have a population that most of the population has uh, experienced coronavirus if the vaccine doesn't come in in the meantime, and that will probably give us some protection and hopefully develop some herd immunity. Either, you know, so either naturally or naturally. With com- in combination with the vaccine, there's going to be some herd immunity. So the main thing is if there's enough herd immunity, we, we can try to, that might protect um, the more vulnerable people. How many people have to get vaccinated to, to establish herd immunity? I mean, there are some people that say everybody should get inoculated. That, that, that's impractical. That's not going to happen. So is, is there a number that you look at, a percentage? It, it depends on the, the virus. Different viruses have different rates of infection. Something like measles is highly infectious, and you need to have about 90, 95% of the population vaccinated to have herd immunity. And other ones, it's, it's much lower. It, it could be 70%. So it depends on how infectious it is. And um, and how effective the vaccine is, but you you need to have um, you know anytime you have a population where there's a, a large group of people that aren't uh, uh, um, immunized or don't have natural immunity, there's always that uh, you you drop in someone that has the infection, you're going to have outbreaks. So you really need um, the majority of people to be uh, to have a protection against uh, you know a virus or in particular coronavirus given what we know about, uh, about covid cd and we're learning something about it every day it seems this yes. people tend to forget about the fact this in we've only known about this for about 4 months now okay. uh, would you would you classify that as as you do measles as a very infectious disease that probably needs massive inoculation i i would i, I would um, massive inoculation but there are probably again many people who are um, 
have natural immunity to it. But yes, I think to get this virus under control, uh, ultimately, I think mass immunization with um, uh, 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 an effective COVID vaccine is really what we need. You, you mentioned about building up immunity and, and uh, for people that have had the virus, and some of them, of course, are, are asymptomatic. As you, and we've heard those stories that probably had it but didn't even realize it, just thought it was a cold or something. Uh, does, does that impact the, the, the efficiency of the antibodies that you build up in the immunity? I mean, if you have a severe case, do you have more immunity or less, is, or is it just the same for everybody? Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Um, so people who have minimal symptoms and, uh, um, you know, and have had COVID, are they less protected? I don't know. Uh, I would think that if, you're, if you've had the infection, your body's cleared it, then you have immunity. Um, so I don't know if it's proportionate to the severity. Uh, and I think only with time and as they start doing mass screening of people looking to see who's immune, who's not immune, who had uh, symptoms and severe symptoms and no symptoms, then we'll have a better idea of uh, what kind of protection that that's going to give. Well, there are a number of people that are still skeptical. There are some non-believers. I, well, there's always going to be non-believers, I guess, about all this stuff. That be that as it might. Uh, but for those that are saying, well, you know, is is this as severe as it is? It, uh, people are making it out to be. Clearly, it is. And and they're criticizing some of the the health experts uh, that are well. They were wrong about this. They were wrong about this. Uh, but I think we need to be fair here, though, Doctor, and, and, and I want to get you a read on this. We're learning about this every day. I mean, when we talked about what the symptoms were for COVID back in February, and now we've broadened that list of what the, the possible symptoms could be simply because we are tracking, and as, as somebody is identified as, as somebody with COVID, and say, well, this is how it presented here and how it presented here. It could be two different things. So this is this this is always a work in progress, isn't it? I agree with you 100%. I mean, this is a new new virus. Uh, you know, initially they thought it was a respiratory virus, and now we're realizing that it can affect, you know, every system in the body. For some people, they present with uh, a stomach and bowel symptoms. Other people present with um, cold-like symptoms. Other people have um, muscle aches and, and, and uh, fatigue. So, you know, a lot of this we're, we're learning as we go along. You know, some people present with no symptoms except they have lost their sense of smell and taste. And so, you know, as we learn, uh, we're, we're developing new ways of um, understanding it and dealing with it. And if someone, for example, there was a lot of criticism against Dr. Tam because she flip-flopped about the masks. Uh, and, you know, we had a certain amount of knowledge um, at the beginning, and that knowledge changed. And, and I would rather have someone change their mind about something based on evidence than stick to something that's wrong, right? And so Absolutely. I think, yeah, we need to know that we're all learning about this, and no one, knows, no one knows all the answers. We didn't know that it could present in children with rashes, and now we know that. And so we have to be adjusting and changing our perspective and our approach based on the new evidence that comes out. And we've heard that. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, of course, is a medical officer on CNN. That uh, He said the same thing. He says he was against masks initially. He said, but I've learned, uh, and I've changed my mind, and, and which is what you're supposed to do with science. That's right. Uh, there, I, you know, there's, there's always going to be a sliding scale here. Uh, doctor, I know how busy you are. I know you're ac- actually at work today on the job, and uh, we really do appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about this. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much.
Take care. Dr. Anna Bajeri, of course, from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.